Welcome to Wake Up and Pay Attention, the podcast fueling positive change from the inside out. I'm Mark Robertson, your host. With over 25 years as a professional coach, I'm thrilled to explore the personal growth tools that have helped me and hundreds of people just like you design and awaken to their best life. If you've ever felt overwhelmed and unfulfilled, like you're just going through the motions day after day, maybe you're afraid one day all the balls are going to drop, you're in the right place. Together, let's expand our self-awareness and make sustainable shifts that improve our communication skills, relationships, and overall well-being. This is a judgment-free zone where openness, understanding, and support rule. So grab your headphones and get ready. It's time to wake up and pay attention. Welcome to episode three of Wake Up and Pay Attention. Today we will build upon what we touched in the last episode on, which was what we called the observer action results model. Today what we'll do is we'll deconstruct that observer. So when I'm talking about the opportunity to create change or growth or learn in your life, I'm going to begin to tell you today explicitly what I'm going to ask you to notice or pay attention to when I say it's about becoming a better observer of the observer that you are. So today is about deconstructing that thing I've been calling the observer. And then we will delve into one of the significant of the three dimensions of that observer, which is language. I touched on this in the very first episode at a high level, but I want to go a little deeper today into both the three circle model as well as into language specifically. So let's get started. So if you remember last time we talked about everything starts with the observer that you are, who you are, or I like to say sometimes who you be, which isn't grammatically correct, but it lends itself to the notion of thinking about our being or our way of being. That always comes before our doing, which is action. So that's the second part of the observer action results model. Being always precedes doing. And then most of us take a fair amount of action or a lot of action. I mean, you take the action that you take, whatever the volume of that is, and you produce the results in your life. So we have results in many different what we call domains. You know, your health and wellness, social friendships, your family, finance, your career, all of those are what we call different domains of your life. And you're producing results in all those areas. So what we're saying is if you want a different result, if you want things to change in any of those areas, this is the framework in which to follow. So we're deconstructing that thing I'm calling the observer today. So what is it? So for us, I mentioned in the first episode, the Olympic rings, if you could visualize three circles that are heavily interconnected to one another, much like the Olympic rings, almost on top of one another. And I say it that way after exploring and playing with these ideas for 30 years, they are so interconnected. One influences the other two almost instantaneously in any moment, but then also one influences the other two over a long period of time, and they become habitually interconnected to one another. So the way we talk about it ontologically is that those three circles, and they are language, emotion, and body, they are coherent or congruent. They always go together. And again, there's the momentary version of those that goes together. More powerfully, though, is the one that's shaped over a long period of time, which is the one that I'd like to spend more time looking at and the one I think we'll have to look at to create change because I think it's the one that has you begin to think this is your reality. This is the way that it is because you've experienced it in that way for such a long time. 
So let me talk a little bit about each of the three circles, and then we're going to dive deeper today into the, the language circle. So language, what do I mean by language? It's your little voice in your head. That's called your internal conversation. It's what I'm doing right now, which is speaking out loud. That's, that is linguistic or that's using language. When humans communicate and have a conversation with one another, that's language. So there's the public conversation that's happening. And then there's always the private conversations of the parties that are happening. So there are multiple aspects of language going on at all times. Also, in the way that I learned it, we talk about our belief systems as being a form of language. That might sound something like, all women are this, all men are that. Money is this. Money is the root of all evil. A penny saved is a penny earned. And if you begin to take a look at that, if, as you say, we pay attention to become more aware of it and notice, you realize you have beliefs about everything. Politics, religion, sex, all those taboo ones that we don't like to talk about here in the South, but just beliefs about tons of things. The best pen, the best TV show, who was the greatest of all time in sports. It's crazy how many beliefs we have about things. And what I think we don't notice is those beliefs are formed in language. They take the form of what we call a declaration. I believe this. I believe that. And when they become habitual, in, in a sense, they become what we culturally will call the filter with which you filter everything through. When you're seeing or experiencing the world or you're listening to other human beings, that's the filter that's operating. Everything is getting filtered through those. So that's language. And another piece of language that I'll go into a little more today is what, what are called the speech acts. So I'll talk about that a little more here in a minute. There's then the emotional circle, which is our emotions and our moods. We say that as a human being, you're always in some emotion or mood. You can't not be. So it's always present. So my question for you would be, are you even aware of what it is? And are you even aware of the effect that it's having on who you are and how you're seeing the world, how you're experiencing the world? Because it's different. An angry person takes in the world different than a happy person. A resentful person takes in and reacts differently than an optimistic person. So that's what I mean when I talk about the importance of emotions and moods. And many of us tend to settle into a predominant mood pretty early in our lifetime, often as a function of the family environment that we grew up in. We'll get into more depth in a future episode about that as well. So you've got the language piece always operating. In fact, I'll say this, it's operating right now. As you're listening to me in this podcast, it's being filtered through your language. It's being filtered through your emotional state at the moment. And it's third piece is the body or biology. It's being affected by the way in which you're sitting right now, your typical posture, the way you stand or move in the world, the way you walk in the world. That's all of what I mean by body. And we also introduce the concept of our biology. And I'll talk a lot more in one of the episodes about the impact of our biological structure, if you will. As an example of that, you may remember if you listened to the first episode, or maybe it was last, actually it was the second episode I talked about. I'm asking you to become a better observer of yourself and the way you observe in the moment. And that actually is biologically hard because what I'm really asking you to do is in some way to step outside of yourself, which can be challenging at times. So for today, we've established this next piece that the observer is 
this bundle of this coherent, congruent bundle of our language, emotion, body. So let me give you an example. If you go through much of your life and your language, your internal voice is saying, I don't matter. Everyone's smarter than me. I should be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. So there's a lot of negative judgment in that language. Uh, I'm not as good as everyone else. Then the corresponding emotion and body that will take shape with that is going to be coherent or congruent. If that's your inner voice, then I can promise you you're going to live in an emotion or mood and or mood of inadequacy, hesitation, perhaps sadness, perhaps depression, resignation. It could be a number of things. And then your body will take a corresponding shape. You will slouch. You will sit in a certain way. You will lean back in the world. You will hide from the world. You'll sit. If you're at work, you'll try to diminish yourself in some way. That should make sense. The opposite is then true. If you walk through every day, and I just felt my own body shift, and the volume of my voice may have gone. If you walk through every day thinking, I'm solid, I'm a good person, I'm confident, I matter, I'm as smart as everyone here, I know what I know and I know what I don't know and that's going to be okay. I can go through the world just fine. I'll be able to handle things. If that's your internal little voice going, then the emotion or mood you're going to live in is one of probably peace or optimism. Happiness will probably be an emotion you visit, at least calmness. So you and maybe even some ambition, you can see the connection. And then your body will also correspond to that. You will stand upright. You'll have your chest open. You'll have a open to the world posture. People that are in your life will be able to notice that about you. It's no coincidence in many ways that people look the way that they look. It's because of this combination happening and creating who they are over time. We can see it in other people. In fact, again, in other pieces, we often are better at seeing it in others than we are in ourselves. So if our dear friend comes in and we look at them instantly bodily wise and we go, what's wrong? We know, or we have a feeling or a sense of the mood that just walked into the room and we're like, something's off. What's going on? How are you? Or we can see the opposite wow, they're really full of themselves today, or they're really confident today. So what I'll say is that in some way, you already know this stuff about yourself. If you've been paying attention in your life, I'm just going to use a particular set of distinctions and words, distinctions actually in language to describe these with more clarity, hopefully, and to distinguish some from the others so that you can see the details and the pieces that are in effect all the time in your life, which again, I feel like a broken record to some extent, will then allow you to, to, it will empower you to create change in your life. So I think that's enough for you to get a visual sense of the language, emotion, body connection that shapes the observer we are, who's always acting and creating results. So let's push further down into this one circle of language. So the way I want to do that today is actually to offer you what we call the three linguistic claims about human beings, three powerful aspects of language in our lives that many people have never thought of or never heard of. And so I'm going to go one by one, and then I'm going to give you examples of each. But first, let me share what they are with you. The first one is human beings are linguistic beings. We live in language. The second one is our language is generative and creative, not just passive and descriptive. And the third one is language is action. 
Many people have never heard those. If this is the first time you're hearing them, I'm delighted to bring them to you. And then I want to just try to give you examples of how powerful these are. Let's start with the first one. Human beings are language beings. We live in language. The example that I heard when I heard this for the first time was this idea that humans to language are much like a fish to water. If you've ever had a fish and you've had it in a fish bowl, maybe when you were growing up, you had a goldfish in a bowl and you watch the fish swim around. The fish is swimming in water. The water is so close to it, it doesn't even realize that it's in water. It's right up next to its skin. It's almost like it's transparent to the fish. So we used to ask the question, when does a fish know it lives in water? And it was like when it's taken out. Many of us have pulled a fish out with a net or it's jumped out. And what does it do? It flops around. It's like, put me back, put me back. I need this to survive. I can't breathe. So we put it back in water and it swims off. Humans are similar in with regard to language. We actually need it to survive. We survive with it. Language is so close to us, we often don't see it. So that's what we mean by human beings are language beings. I used an example a minute ago, that little voice in your head, your private conversation, which is incredibly powerful, has so much to do, I think, with our experience in life and our well-being. And we are talking to ourselves all the time. You've been doing this since you were little, depending on your brain development, probably somewhere in the nine month to 12, 14 month age, you began to be a language being, if you will. So we've really got to look at it. It's incredibly powerful. So I'll give you some other examples of what I mean by human beings are linguistic beings. We live in language the whole time. One of those is this. Animals don't suffer, we say. Human beings suffer. And you might have gone, wait a minute, animals do suffer. And I'll say, let's look at it. Like animals, do they feel pain? Yes, we know animals feel pain. If you hit them, they will make a noise. They'll run off. We know that, right? Humans feel pain. We know that as well. But as far as we know, animals don't suffer. Humans suffer because we have language. So let me give you a story that illustrates this. Imagine you're a lion on the savanna and it's your day to hunt. You went over to the big tree near where your pride stays and you saw on the chart, the hunting chart, it's my day to hunt. So you saw your name right there. So it's my day to hunt. So you're sitting there watching out for the different animals and you notice your buddies are all hanging out over here. All the other lions are hanging out, watching. They're going to judge how well you hunt. And then you notice over here are all the lionesses, who actually, by the way, do the hunting, if we want to be factual. Uh, they're watching as well. So here you are. It's your day to hunt. So you're watching and all of a sudden you see some, let's say, wildebeest go by. You see some zebra, some antelope. And all of a sudden you see some gazelles and you think, I think I want a gazelle today. So you crouch down in the grass. If you've ever seen any of these shows on National Geographic, you know what I'm talking about. You're crouched in the grass and you're slowly moving forward and you're stalking, you're sneaking up on the gazelles and you get close enough and you decide, okay, now it's time. So off you go, you jump out of the, the high grass and the gazelle take off and you target one in the back and you're closing the gap on this gazelle thinking, yeah, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. All of a sudden you hit this big log that you didn't see, you tumble over, dirt goes everywhere, you're a mess, you're tumbling, you come to a stop and do lines through this. You get up and you go, you brush yourself off and you go, look, my buddies over there, they're all laughing at me. They're never gonna hang out with me. None of them are gonna wanna go out to happy hour with me. I'm gonna be the loser lion in the pride. None of them will talk to me, I'm doomed. 
And then you glance over the other way. And, oh my gosh, all the lionesses, they've just walked off. I've embarrassed myself. None of them would be interested in going out with me on Saturday night. We've got the big dance coming up, right? Lions don't do that. What do they do? They're, as a lion, you're, gonna, you're hungry. You're going to get back up and go chase another gazelle or you're going to hunt some more. Humans do that. That's what we mean by humans are linguistic beings. We go through life. We have an event happens. Okay. We make up a story about it. We forget that we made up this story about what happened and then we hold it to be the truth. And because of that, we suffer. I'm trying to paint an example in which you're using language to create suffering, embarrassment, shame, all that stuff in your life. And so that's how human beings suffer because we have language. And particularly related to that story, what I would say is that human beings suffer because we do what's called we make up stories. So again, we move through the day and all kinds of interactions and events happen in our life. And then we start talking to ourselves and judging things, ourselves and others. And we start telling ourselves a story about what's going to happen and what won't happen and why this was good and why this was bad. So as I mentioned a minute ago, we go through life, we make up a story, we forget that we made it up, all of a sudden becomes a way that it is. And then we hold it as the truth. It is the way that it is. And if anyone else challenges our perspective on it, we say, no, 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 this is the way that it is. This is the reality of it. We stop seeing that we made it up and it becomes reality or the way it is for us. So I hope that's beginning to paint a picture of how human beings are linguistic beings. Language is always operating for us. And in my work as an executive coach, it's really interesting whether I've done personal coaching or business coaching with leaders and companies, Many times the breakthrough and the solution for folks is when we can see that our story is just a story. It's not the story, that there are many other stories we could be telling. And in a way, what I like to say to my clients is it's almost as if like your mind is a blank sheet of paper. You're writing the story. Write one that's powerful. Write one that's empowering or at least not suffering. Many of us, myself included, in growing up, began to tell myself an incredibly disempowering story. Mine was in particular that there was something wrong with me. And that sort of played out day in and day out in my life. When I would have moments of tripping up or failing, I would almost write behind that my little voice say, see, I told you there's something wrong with you. In fact, it became so strong for me that I think in a way I began to self-sabotage myself as I got up to something successful, I would sabotage myself so that I could prove that story that I had been telling myself for so long was the truth. It was right. Once again, look, I can prove to you there is something wrong with me. And we'll go into that a little more as we progress through the podcast and give some different examples around that. But I hope that idea of human beings or language beings, we're always in it. You can't get out of it. We'll have you start to perhaps notice your little voice better. Notice the power that it has, the impact that it's having. The second claim, as I mentioned, was language is generative and creative, not just passive and descriptive. So what does that mean? It means that I think historically, when we quote use language, we often think we're describing things. Look at that really cool cup or look at that great sweater or look at that fantastic couch in your condo or you've got this place so wonderfully decorated and all you're doing or look at maybe more powerfully is when we describe other people tell me about someone's or this 
they're that. They're not very good at this. They're really good at that. We think all we're doing is describing them and actually we are generating something. We're creating something that in a way is creating the future for ourselves and them. So I'll try to give you some examples of that. The classic example would be the old saying, if you've ever heard this, and I'm going to date myself here, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. That's crap. And yet I heard that many times growing up. I think the intent is good, which is don't let other people's opinions hurt you or crush you, like have a thicker skin. Yet so many of us do let other people's opinions have an effect on us or trigger us. And we'll talk about that in the future. But just the basic concept, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is nonsense. Words have incredible power. And I think we all know this already in our life. It's because language is generative and creative. Give you a really simple example. If you think about in your life now, however old you are, if every time in the past when you had said yes, instead you said no, would your life be the same? It wouldn't. Every one of those moments you would have gone in a different direction. You would have forked to a different place in the road. Who knows where you might be? So just the simple act of saying yes or no is generative or creative. Another example that I used to tell when we would do our workshops is if you've ever been to a wedding, there's always a moment in the wedding where the person that's officiating or the minister or whoever's officiating the wedding says, is there anyone in this audience that has any objections to these two getting married? If you do speak now or forever hold your peace. Can you imagine what would happen if you actually spoke at that time? Don't you think it would generate something? I would say absolutely it would generate something. If you say, I don't think these two have any business getting married, you're going to generate a reputation or an identity for yourself in that moment with the couple, but also with everybody else there that's probably going to be pretty negative just by the fact that you spoke up. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying language is generative and creative. Another piece that we could tie to a wedding example would be, think about what happens in a wedding ceremony. It's an incredible example of the use of the generative power of language. The person officiating or the pastor or the priest or whoever is officiating it, they have the authority bestowed upon them by some organization. They make a lot of declarations, but perhaps the most powerful declaration that's made in a wedding is when the couple themselves make a declaration. And that's pretty typical in wedding vows. It's like some version of, do you take this person to be your lawfully wedded husband, wife, or spouse. And the moment that other person says, I do, simply two words, something changed from one moment to the next. They went from being single to being married. And if you've ever been married, you know the difference between being married and being single. It's very different. So I'm just giving you some examples to look at the small ways, just a few words in which we use language that is powerful. It's generative. You've probably had this experience in your life. Certain people that you trusted and were open to use language that was very cutting towards you, and it hurt. And you've probably done the same. I know I have. I have at times purposely used language to harm, and I've tried to go back and clean that up. But again, that's the generative power of our language. One last piece that I'll talk about here that is probably the most powerful is this. Let me give you a question to entertain. If you think about every relationship in your life that you have currently and every relationship you've ever had in the past, 
with two exceptions, which are your parents and any siblings you had, because your parents had you, you didn't have any choice in it, in a way. And then your siblings just showed up on the scene. So these don't apply, at least in this example, but every other relationship you've ever had in your life and have now started in the same way. What is it? And I would answer you, someone spoke to someone, someone used language. Someone said, hello, I'm Mark. And you said, hello, I'm so-and-so. And away you went in the conversation. So that's the word I want to introduce to you that we'll use a lot in the podcast, which is conversation. So if you think about it, really conversations, which is composed of language, start, maintain, deepen, or erode our relationships. That's the primary connector between language and relationships is in conversation. Our conversation formed the depth and the breadth of a relationship. So if you have a relationship in your life, which we might call just an acquaintance, and all you talk about are sports and the weather, you're going to have a fairly narrow relationship. But I bet most of you have some up to a handful of best friends, your closest friends, where you would say, man, we have a great relationship. And if I ask you to look and, and think about why, guess what? It's probably because you have gone anywhere you need to go and want to go in conversation with this person. The good, the bad, the hard stuff. You've gotten very honest. They've given you honest feedback. I talk about it. You know, your best friends won't buy your BS. They'll tell you the straight up stuff. And sometimes it hurts, but that's why you have such a powerful relationship with them is because your conversations have generated that relationship. What I find in general is that the more you push into harder conversations and relationship and survive them and get to the other side, it expands that relationship, which then allows you to have deeper and even harder conversations after that. So what's the short version of this? The conversations are the relationship. Here's a tip for you. If you have any relationship in your life right now that you are not satisfied with and you want to change, guess how you change it? Change the conversation. That's exactly how it works. So that's claim number two. Language is generative and creative, not just passive and descriptive. Next, we move to the third claim, which is language is action. So what do I mean by that? Literally, to speak is to act. And you're probably already getting that from some of the other examples I've given. But I think about at 58 years old now and some of the historical notions of what we're really doing when we're talking and listening or we're having conversations. There's this old notion, especially in the workplace, like, look, you people standing over there, stop talking, and get to work as if we're not doing anything when we're talking or maybe in your personal life. Somebody, hey, look, stop talking, stop all that cutting up and go do something. So we're separating talking from doing. And I'm going to say that actually talking in so many instances is doing that language is action. So the primary way that this happens, and I'll go into each of these as we get into later podcasts, but are what I was introduced to in my ontological training, and they're called the basic language acts or the basic speech acts. And there are six of them. So I'll tell you what they are now, and then we'll go into more detail later. You can either make an assessment, an assertion, a declaration, a request, an offer, or a promise. That's it. In thousands of years, in every human conversation there's ever been, they have all been comprised of one or more of those speech acts. There's nothing outside of that in language that you can be using, which I think is really amazing and powerful, helps us have a deeper understanding of what we're up to in life, and particularly when we're having conversations. 
So let me give you some examples of how language is action. Let's imagine that I texted you or called you up on your phone and you answered and I said, hey, listen, I've got this party I'm having on Friday night, seven o'clock at my house. Will you come? And you think for a second, you go, yes, I'll come. Right then, we've just done this. We've, I've made a request of you and you've made a commitment or a promise to me. And we have generated a future that will unfold on Friday that didn't exist 30 seconds ago. Language is action. And yet we don't see that, right? So that's classically how most of us do our personal and our professional life is lots of asks, lots of commitments, lots of promises. So we're constantly acting. Now, we could look deeper at it and say, are you someone that has trouble asking for what you want? Then you're gonna, you're not acting in that regard. You're not using language to its fullest power. Or more of us, I find these days, tend to make more commitments than we have time to deliver upon. We overpromise, and we get stressed and overwhelmed because we've overcommitted ourselves beyond the time we had. So don't think that you aren't acting when you're using language. You are doing something. In fact, I think anybody that's ever been in a meaningful relationship would say sometimes it was one conversation that changed the trajectory of that whole relationship. I've worked with clients and seen years and decades of really difficult, challenging relationships, and we have one meaningful, powerful conversation, and that sets the stage for the relationship to go in a whole different, more positive, forgiving, healing direction. It's quite extraordinary. Another way that we use the speech acts might be in our assessments or our judgments, right? We are acting when we're doing that. Human beings are assessment machines. We constantly judge. Most often the person that we judge the harshest is ourselves. And don't think that doesn't matter. It hugely matters. We are acting when we do that. We start to then shape a view of ourselves and we almost begin to sort of predict or create a future that will unfold because of how we are judging ourselves, because of how we're using language. It's more often, I think, recognizable when we think about other people. When we meet them a few times, we start judging them, we start putting them in a box, a particular reputation or identity for them, and then we start interacting and corresponding with that in the future. So the future will unfold a certain way because of the way that we've been judging them. And again, we'll get deeper into this one. This is an incredibly powerful topic and we'll probably have multiple episodes on this, but I just want you to get a sense that in this last claim that language is acting, you are doing something when you're acting. And I guess in this claim, I'll also save the best for last, which is this. In my corporate work, when I work with leaders in terms of their development, the primary idea is this. If you really look at leaders and what do they get paid to do, they get paid to have effective conversations. That is my shtick in the workplace. It's leaders get paid to have effective conversations. If you're a leader, you know this. You are in meetings all day long. You're on emails. You're IMing. You're slacking. You're texting. It's a different medium, but it's all conversational in nature. If you really stop and look at what you get paid to do as a leader, you get paid to have effective conversations. So the action of leadership is actually conversational in nature. So I would invite you now to think of yourself as a leader or think of yourself as a spouse or think of yourself as a parent or a friend. So much of all of that is conversational in nature. And where do you need to grow? Where do you need to improve? Where do you need to be better? 
Do you need to learn to speak up more? Do you need to learn to be more quiet? Often silence is a more powerful move than talking. Do you need to learn to listen better? Listen more powerfully. If that's the crux of relationships and the crux of leadership, you need to be a great listener. Do you need to pay attention to other aspects of the conversation? Do you need to learn to be present fully in the conversation? It's one of my biggest beefs these days is this notion that we can multitask. I'll tell you right now, the brain is not designed to multitask. You cannot do it. And we'll talk more about that in later episodes as well. But be present fully for the conversation because that's the essence of the relationship or for leaders. That's what you get paid to do. So those are the three linguistic claims. I'll recap those real quick. The first one, human beings are language beings. We're linguistic, we're storytelling machines. So I would invite you to begin to look at what are the stories that I've created about myself and possibilities in my life, about the others I'm in relationship with in life, about the current set of events in my life, because it's just one story. You could change this. In fact, it might empower you to change some of these stories not live in these stories. Remember the word I use that have you suffer. You cannot go back and change your past, right? None of those events can be changed, but the story you tell about it is where your peace lives. You can change that story at any time. As long as you're not overly attached to it or write about it's the only story. Okay. Second one is language is generative and creative, not just passive and descriptive. There's so much power to our language. And the third claim is language is action. We are acting and that especially plays itself out in the role of a leader when you're working with other people in teams and organizations. But I think in general, in life, any conversation we're having, we need to understand I'm taking an action here. It matters. It's meaningful in most conversations. So that's what we've talked about today. And in addition to that, we began to delve deeper into the breakdown of the observer, which is the three circles of language, emotion, and body. The main one we touched on today was just language. We'll get into the other two in future episodes. So what's my homework ask of you as we leave this episode? I really want you to start noticing how you're using language. Notice the way you talk to yourself day in, day out, and during the day. Notice the stories you're telling. Are they working or not? Remember my key question for evaluating anything in this realm. Is it working or is it not working? Not is it right or wrong. It's a paradigm that I think traps us. One in which I was steeped in for so long, and I'll talk about that later. But is this working for me or not working for me? And if it's not working for you, maybe get about changing it. So in the coming few weeks, I want you to pay attention to your internal conversation. What is that creating? Are there some stories about your life that you're suffering with? Just notice it. I'm not asking you to do anything with it right now, but just notice, isn't that interesting? That's the story I'm telling. And I know that I'm suffering with that. Maybe that story is too small, needs to be changed or be a bigger story. And I'm not saying it, it invalidates any of the events, the negative events or harmful things that have happened in your life. I'm just saying you have the pen, you're writing the story. You get to decide whether you want to create a story of suffering or create a story that is empowering. So that's what I'm asking you to do over the next few weeks is just entertain this notion that what if any of the way I've been using language or any of these stories I've been telling myself 
they're not true because they're not. They're just one story. But what if I realized that? What if I understood it? It could be changed instantly. How would that change my life? What would be different? And the final question I'll leave you with in all of that is what's in the way if you don't want to let go of your story? What is the cost of hanging on to it? What is in the way of hanging on to that story? I wish you the best and hopefully I'll be in conversation with you soon as we continue this conversation that we call Wake Up and Pay Attention. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today. I'm so grateful you joined me and hope you feel energized by the insights we took a deeper look at together. If anything resonated with you or inspired new thinking, drop me a note. I'd love to hear your biggest takeaway. Please join me next time as we dive deeper into this never-ending journey of self-discovery. Until then, be well, be present, live fully and authentically, wake up and pay attention.